Hello and welcome back to Mars Radio 14, the third best radio station on the Martian Space Force broadcasting spectrum. And today I'm going to be talking to a Martian Space Force lieutenant who has just returned from visiting the corridors of time. So Bungalow, what are they like? Do you know the Book of Sazmin? What? Yes, Bungalow, of course. What were the corridors of time like? What color were the walls? White half milk carton. So, so you know what happens in the book of Sazman. Yes, Sazman was authenticated by the Zardonians and came back from the dead six dipples later. What's it got to do with the corridors of time? What were these corridors like, Bungalow? Did they have carpets? Uh, yeah, a beige carpet throughout. Anyway, you know that Martian Command are planning to let AI take control of the Martian Space Force? Yes, it's a natural progression for the Martian Space Force. AI can analyze every piece of Martian thought ever recorded and then dictate to us the best course of action based on what it has consumed. For obligong sake, Bungalow, will you get back to the corridors? No freaking way. No way I'm ever setting foot in them again. Not after what I saw happen to the humans. Oh my goodness, it was awful. What was horrible? The future of humanity. You see, I got a bit lost. You know what happens. All those corridors look the same. Bada bing, bada boom, beige carpet, white walls, and accidentally, all of a sudden, I'm wandering down the corridor for the future of humanity. And it turns out they have a book like the book of Sazmin. Only they call a sanctification crucifixion and nail their fella to two lengths of a sliced tree. So what, Bungalow? Something like that probably happens on every planet. So what? So freaking what is the humans also let AI make the decisions for them? And after analyzing every piece of human thought ever recorded, it decided the best way to help humans would be to defeat death. By crucifying everyone! Which, I mean, trust me, hmm, not good. I mean, I'll bet whoever decided to paint the corridors of time, 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 white, well, is feeling like a pretty big pile of crap right now. I bet they are. Sounds messy indeed. It's a good thing we paint everything red on this planet. Just like the great Sosman said, the more of things that you paint red, the less chance have you of being dead. Whoa, whoa. Do you think he was right half milk cotton? We'll see, Bungalow. We'll see. When Bean and I started Cronscast, the fantasy, science fiction and horror podcast, we were flying by the seat of our pants. A friend suggested Zencaster and we've never looked back. We've used Zencaster for every episode of Cronscast and it's never let us down. The reason I love it is that even when we have connection problems, Zencaster records and backs up each audio track at source, meaning the audio signal is smooth and uninterrupted. When you're on a call with someone 3,000 miles away and in a different continent, that's the sort of reassurance you need. It's now super easy to record a podcast with Zencaster. Log in using your browser and start recording a high-quality podcast right away. Record studio-quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. Feel a sense of Zen, knowing Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and distribute it to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use my code CRONSCAST and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experience as I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. Hello, welcome back to the show. We're joined here by Anne Perry. Uh, we've talked about Uprooted. Now we're going to have a little more general chat. So uh, it's, it's the first time, actually, we've had a publisher on the show. We've had John Gerald, who's worked in publishing, but uh, he's an agent now and has been for a number of years. So it's the f- first time we've had 
uh, a present, you know, an, an in situ publisher on the show. So I think we'll start with asking how you see uh, the state of the publishing market in, in 2023. A lot of our audience are writers. They like to understand what's going on in the markets or at least, you know, try to have, try, try to have it interpreted and made sense of and demystified. So, so what, what are things looking like at the moment for you and for the wider industry? Wow. Uh, so it's a, it's a big question and I'm definitely going to think of about seven things that I wanted to say after we're finished speaking. Um, <laughs> but uh, so a couple of the sort of important. What, actually, just on that important, sure. if there is something that you do remember afterwards and there are some, maybe some links that you can send on, uh, people can do their own research then then do that. We'll post that in the episode literature. No problem. Oh, brilliant. That's great. Thank you. Um, so I think, One of the first and most important things to talk about is the fact that, as I'm sure your listeners will have noticed, the prices of books are increasing. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, we've always been quite lucky in the UK um, in that the the price of of physical books has been relatively lower than what it is in the US. So for example, I was born and raised in the US and I moved over here in the the mid 2000s. And um, when I was still living in the US, you know, I was out of out of college. I was in grad school. I didn't have two pennies to rub together, um, and I could not afford to buy hardback books um, because they were. I mean, and this again, we're talking fifteen years ago now, but um, they could be twenty five to thirty five dollars for for a, a front list hardback book, and that was completely out of my price range. And I remember moving to the UK and discovering that fiction hardbacks, you know, were at most about 20 bucks, but very often could be anywhere between 12.99 and 16.99. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, this is amazing. This is a steal. I'm, I'm getting away with murder. <laughs> and so I've always, I have to admit, I've always had, I've always felt a bit of a personal stake in the, in the price of books in the UK and sort of watching the prices rise over the past couple of years has been, has been fascinating. I've had very, very mixed feelings about it. Um, and of course, on the one hand, the, as I'm, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with, the, the cost of production across the board has skyrocketed over the last few years. Um, it started a little before the COVID pandemic really took place, um, really kicked off, I should say. But um, sort of just the, the way the global supply chain began slowing down over the course of 20 and 20, 2020 and 2021 meant that it just <laughs> it just became harder to get paper. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure we all remember sort of breathless headlines from a couple of years ago about paper shortages. Um, but basically the cost of making a single book just increased, expo- not exponentially, but it increased significantly in a meaningful way. And to be perfectly honest, a lot of UK-based publishers really did resist raising the prices of books. Um, There was a lot, there has been, and there continues to be a lot of concern about whether the market can really take more expensive hardbacks. Um, And so you'll see, I'm speaking in fiction um, primarily, nonfiction, more expensive hardbacks have been the norm for decades. But in fiction, um, there were a lot of concerns about whether a 25 pound hardback uh, could work. And so um, the the sort of pilot fish for these would be things like, you know, Stephen King, John Grisham. Um, I can't remember how much the Richard Osman hardbacks cost. But for real heavyweights. Yeah. Um, but the, the big ones that have huge built-in audiences mm. um, and basically... Uh, what we were seeing was sort of an experiment to see if if people would buy the books, even if they were in some cases five pounds more expensive than they had been the year before. And so, um, so we are seeing the prices of books sort of creep up across the board. Um, you know, when I again when I first started out, a, a B format paperback could be seven ninety nine, eight ninety nine, nine ninety nine at the at the outs. <laughs> uh, sort of very rarely, but it did happen that you might get something for nine ninety nine. Now um, nine ninety nine is the norm, and mm-hmm. you can see them up as as eleven, twelve ninety nine or more now. Um, and so that is very much um, down to the fact that the cost of producing a book simply more than it used to be and the the despite the fact that the industry for better and for worse did try to resist raising prices that much 
um, they they really have had to go up over the last couple of years. So I think that's that's certainly one of the most important changes in the market that we've seen over the past few how, years. How, when, when a publisher or the publishers across the board raise the prices uh, in that way, oh, no, no, I'll rephrase that. When a publisher tries not to raise the prices, where are the margins eaten away at in other areas? Yeah, well, that's the thing. Um the uh, the publicity budget might go down. The marketing budget might go down. Um, uh, there, you know, obviously there are cost cutting measures that people try to do um, to enact on the actual sort of like physical creation of a book. But the thing is, there are not that many ways you can cut corners in production for a basic book. You can certainly there are certainly like finishes for a hardback that um, that can make producing it more expensive. But the fact of the matter is uh, publishers are quite good at producing <laughs> producing books that um, are as sort of efficiently and reasonably priced as possible, sort of efficiently produced and reasonably costed <laughs> as possible, if that makes sense. So are the, are the, the, the hard books, the newly priced hard books, so I've, I've noticed a few £25 hardback books on the shelves, are they selling? Is that, is that price sustainable? Is it translating into sales? Yes, I think I think it's taking a little while for people to adjust in some cases, but by and large, it does seem that the market can sustain it so far. Um, and of course, the reason that I, I brought up my specific sort of relationship with the price of books is because what I worry about is that that means that um, you know, people who don't mind paying £25 for a book are not going to mind paying £25 for a book, but it is going to leave out swathes of society who, yeah. um, who can't. And that, you know, that's students, that's people on fixed incomes. And um, you can't, <laughs> they're, <laughs> what you're telling them in essence is, you know, either have have a way of, of reading the ebook, in which case you'll have to you can still pay for the ebook, but it will be less than twenty-five pounds. Go to a library, or wait for the paperback to come out, or wait until you find it in a charity shop. Yeah. But either way, um, in a way, what's what's being what's being bought with that that twenty-five pound price tag is sort of um, an exclusive first look in a way. And I'm I'm being <laughs> I'm wearing my my heart on my sleeve here when I say that, and it's only because I I just worry about the fact that there are so many readers out there who are on fixed incomes, who don't have access to libraries, who maybe don't have access to e-readers. I mean, we mm-hmm. have to remember that the startup cost of an e-reader, even if it's on your smartphone, is still significant, um, and you know not necessarily something that everybody is going to be comfortable investing in. Um, so it does mean that that there's I suppose my worry um, is that it is that it means that it's going to limit audiences for books. Um, is, so, is it viable to to create uh, maybe different tiers of, of books? I mean, you said in the past that, that you go to buy a book and the book is the book. It's a bit like a can of Coke. You know, whether it's the president of, of the USA who's buying a can of Coke or the man on the street, it's the same can of Coke. And the same is pretty much true with books. But is is there maybe um, the need for tiers of books so you can have you know, the, the basic hardback which comes out at the same time and it isn't produced to the the same level as finesse and then maybe you have a luxury line which has the embossed uh, the embossed cover and uh, ornate chapter headings etc etc all, all, all the other you know little bits that can make a book really beautiful I'm a proper bookworm and I think a book can be beautiful even when it's quite plain. Mm-hmm. You know, as long as a little bit of effort has gone into it. Um, but, you know, is, is there possibly a route there is. for that to, to, to increase the market share uh, among, like you, you said, people with fixed actually, incomes? You hit the nail on the head because ah. that, that route to market does exist and it is quite successful. And that is the limited edition and subscription box versions of books that we're seeing now. So, um Waterstones, um, uh, Goldsboro Books in London, um, of course, they famously do uh, limited editions of uh, first format books. Um, Waterstones, I don't know when they started it, but I, I first started paying attention when I um, 
started publishing in 2012, because I remember that was the year that Kate Atkinson's Life After Life came out, and the Waterstones Special Edition. I, w- I went to Waterstones and bought several of their special editions just to sort of, you know, see what it was that other publishers were doing, because what you have to do is you have to essentially say to Waterstones, we have this book coming out, we're th- we think it's going to be really big, we would love to offer to do a special edition for you, here's some extra mm-hmm. material that we can offer, here's the here are the special finishes that we can do, here are the things that we can do to allow you this sort of exclusive special edition yeah um and um and so waterstones uh and goldsboro always were very very good about supporting particularly science fiction and fantasy novels um and they did they would do they continue to do limited edition print runs uh you know that are signed and have special tip-in sheets uh for um for various authors that they support um, and then in about 2015, 2016, the two big UK-based fantasy subscription boxes took off. And those are Fairy Loot and Illumicrate. And they um, work with publishers to produce extremely beautiful, very fancy, very high-spec special editions of first format books. And their audiences buy them for £25 a pop. And in some cases more. And um, so now there, you know, there are many more subscription boxes out there. There are sort of mail order, um, sort of website edition, special edition uh, purveyors. There are some in fantasy and science fiction now, horror, um, mystery, uh, romance. (laughs) There was a, there was a subscription box that was sort of the feminist subscription box for a while that um, was run through a publisher um, there are just a lot of a lot of subscription boxes out there right now, and that again, that model is very much this is the you pay more for a higher spec um, copy of the book, and it you know in in one case a special edition we just did for Illumicrate um, from my imprint, it had a um, different colorway on the cover, it had um, specially illustrated end papers, um, had uh, you know head and tail bands, it had the had the ribbon. Um, it had especially illustrated the, you know, the hardback boards were specially illustrated. And um, I mean, the whole thing was a spectacularly beautiful book. And that was, you know, something that, uh, so subscribers to Illumicrate will get that book for £25 versus the uh, version that will be out in bookstores, which is going to be, I think, sixteen ninety nine. Right. So, okay. Yeah. So that's uh, quite that's a big difference, isn't it? That's a significant, yeah, significant difference. Speaking of what you said about the fear that um, the prize sizes will leave parts of the market just unable to be part of things, if there's one thing I think I hear whenever I talk to writers, it's the fear that the mid-list is just going to disappear and mm, yes. not get it, and there's debuts and there's the debuts that didn't work and the debuts that go big. Do you think that part of the market maybe getting missed out due to price rises might be part of that in the future? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to be honest, the the concerns about the mid-list have been, um, have been things that I've been hearing from writers and honestly from publishers, again, since I started in, in 2012, um, is, you know, concerns about where, where authors who are not debuts and who are not, you know, massive, 100,000 copy bestsellers, um, where they sit, where they work in terms of a publishing house anymore. Um, and I certainly understand the concern and the fear. And I think the, the important thing that I would always counsel writers to remember is that if, if a, so first of all, if you, if you, you know, say you sell your debut to a publisher, you publish a couple of books, they do well to a certain point. They don't, you know, you don't become an instant overnight bestseller, but after your contract is up, the publisher comes back and offers you another contract. Um, you know, they want to continue publishing you. They want to continue making a success of you. They, they have done a, a profit and loss analysis of the books that you've already published with them. They've done a speculative profit and loss analysis of what they think the books that they want to buy from you will do over the next few years. And they've decided that, you know, the, <laughs> the profits will outweigh yeah. the loss and they want to keep working with you. So the mid list does exist. It does continue to exist. Um, there are going to be publishers who are going to be more brutal about um, about cutting, basically cutting out authors from lists if the books are not working. But um, 
I'm afraid that's always been the case. And um, the fact that maybe an author won't have um, won't have a publishing contract renewed after two books as opposed to after five or after seven doesn't necessarily mean that there's a problem with the midlist. Um, it, it means that for better and for worse, the publishing houses are trying to be more more thoughtful about what they spend their money on and how. And again, a lot of that sort of speaks to some of the things we've already talked about in terms of production costs and, you know, where if production costs are coming are going up, then where, where does the, where are the corners cut if they are? And I don't ever want to say that corners are being cut anywhere because they're not, but if profits, but something has to give at the same time. So exactly. But I do, I do absolutely want, you know, if I'm ever asked that question, I do want to reassure writers that, there will, there will always be a midlist that the bulk of a publisher's publishing output is not going to be debuts and massive bestsellers. It's going to be everyone in between, and that's always going to be the case. And then another thing that we haven't really touched on yet is, again, sort of thinking about, sort of speaks a bit to both, Dan, what you were saying about like tiers of books, and Pete in a bit, um, you know, about midlist authors and concerns about where the midlist goes, and sort of a larger larger sort of bird's eye view of the market as a whole. Um, What we didn't have 12 years ago, 10 years ago that we have now is an incredibly vibrant independent publishing scene. And by independent, Mm -hmm. I mean self-published as well as, um, you know, tiny presses. And the the thing is um, self-published authors um, can be, some, you know, some can be phenomenally successful, but self-published authors can be reasonably successful to a, to a level self-publishing um, through platforms like Kindle Unlimited and even not through Kindle Unlimited, um, in part because the readers that would go for the more inexpensive books that they're not getting from bookstores, they're not, <laughs> some of them stop reading, but they're yeah. Yeah, the rest of them are going to go to where the price points are that they can meet. And in many cases, that's online, that's Amazon. And um, I, <laughs> I have a, a, a relative who um, many years ago, this was sort of at the dawn of the self-publishing revolution, um, was telling me that she will read absolutely anything as long as it costs, she's American, as long as it costs less than 50 cents. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, there I am, you know, freshly minted young publisher thinking to myself, oh my God. But the fact of the matter is that's, you know, that's what she could afford and Mm -hmm. she, that's what made her happy. And for the, the amount that she was willing to pay for a book, if she didn't like it and she wasn't enjoying it, she could set it aside and not feel as though she was, you know, being cheated. She'd not been shortchanged. Yeah. Yeah. Shortchanged. And she could just move on to the next one. And when she found something that she liked, she great. She had a new book. So, um, so I do, I do think that that's another really big part of the conversation. And I know I've been (laughs) been sort of flailing a lot in trying to, trying to pull all these disparate threads together. (laughs) But I do think that, um, you know, there, there are huge changes going on in the market right now. I mean, I have not seen, I have not seen the, 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 the world of publishing changed so much as I have seen in the last few years. And it wasn't, you know, the ebook revolution of a few years back when it was like, Oh, this is going to change publishing forever. It didn't. Um, audiobooks, it didn't, but, but the way that Kindle unlimited works and the way subscription boxes work and the fact that it costs more to publish books now than it did five mm-hmm. years ago, those are changing the publishing industry in really significant ways that we're only beginning to unpack. I think. Are they changing the self-publishing part of the publishing industry as well? So a, a lot of self-published authors obviously want a physical, a paperback or a hardback book to go with their, their ebook if they're self-publishing. That brings costs. Are, are you seeing, I mean, I, I don't know the extent to which you, you're engaged in the self-publishing side of the business or you, know, you engage with authors who, who do that sort of thing, but how does the, the the price point of the the materials and the production costs how is that affecting the self publishing side of the industry that's a really interesting question too um so it's quite easy if you're a self published author to set up essentially a print on demand edition and what i have seen happen is that self published authors who become successful um so fans initially find them through you know their 
their ebook editions. And then when they realize they've discovered something that they love, they go out and buy the um, physical edition, physical editions. Exactly. And so they, the, that's, it's an interesting one because obviously the production quality is not as great as it would be on a traditionally published book. I have a, a couple of, um, uh, print on demand self-published books that I've bought over the past few years. And, you know, the, the, the lamination peels off, the covers peel a bit, the paper's not as nice, but the fact is the physical book does exist. And for those readers who are, you know, they're buying these books cause they're fans. Um, that's the important thing. They have this physical object that mm-hmm. they can say, I am a real fan. I didn't just buy the 99 P ebook. I bought the 1299 print on demand book. Um, and you know, if that author then goes on to get a traditional publishing deal and maybe with that series or with a new series, you know, they've got, they've got an artifact essentially. Yeah. They've got the original, that they were yeah. the true believers. <laughs> yeah. It, it sounds, forgive me if I've got the wrong end of the stick here. It sounds very much the, the way you're separating out self-publishing with traditional publishing, that they're not competing with each other. They are two actually quite distinct markets that don't compete and they operate in their own space. They definitely operate in their own space. Um, traditional publishing is quite jealous of self-published authors. Um, self-published authors are uh, much better at using metadata to drive sales. They're very, very savvy about um, developing brands. Um, a really, a really committed self-published author um, can, uh, you know, they. <laughs> They can. They have the the gift of time and energy that um, the marketing and the publicity people who are working on a, a title in a traditional publisher do not, because they have one client that's themselves, yeah, and they have um, all the time in the world to try to make a success of the books, and um, and so <laughs> so on the one hand, there's that. There's also the fact that. So this is sort of half conspiracy theory and half not <laughs> half sort of based on, on real observations. Um, but there's there's a very real sense that Amazon um, privileges self-published authors over traditionally published authors. Uh, self-published authors, um, above and beyond the fact that you get much better royalties if you are self-published through Amazon than you do if you're traditionally published. Um you as a self-published author have an immense amount of control over the way that your information about your book appears online, um, an immense amount of control about over how, how you can make it appear and how quickly you can change it. And uh, you receive an immense amount of data about it. So you can, you can make a, a change to the copy of your ebook online, uh, you know, the copy that reads out on your Amazon page for your book, have it feed out overnight, and then know within a couple of days if that change has been successful or not, and if that's brought more readers in. And traditional publishing um, has sort of scrambled to try and catch up with that over the years. And so traditional publishers are much better now about taking advantage of good metadata of, for example, subtitles. So if you go on Amazon and you search for books, they'll always have subtitles like the extraordinary TikTok sensation that you can't miss. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And that's because um, that that's what (laughs) what self-published authors were doing um, eight or 10 years ago. And it was helping to drive people to their books. And so traditional publishing sort of caught up with it. And then what you have is uh, a publisher like Bookature comes in about eight, 10 years ago and they do ebook only. Um, They, they now have some print. This is, is they're the crime publisher. Is that right? Um, They do a lot of crime, a lot of women's fiction. It's primarily commercial fiction. Um, So they're owned by Hachette, but they initially started out as an independent publisher, ebooks only. And basically, um, authors so they took some agented submissions but if you were an author you could and you still can just submit straight to them um and they would um basically uh package up your book um and uh and publish it and figure out and start 
messing around with the metadata and things, I mean, up to and including the cover image and the title to make sure that they could, they were optimizing it for sales in every way possible. And in that way, they've had remarkable success um, in basically taking the self-published model, but applying it to sort of uh, traditional publishing. Um, and so that's why they were bought by Hachette a few years back. And, uh, and <laughs> I remember before they were bought by Hachette, um, everybody was just very, everybody was sort of fascinated by them because mm-hmm. they were doing, they were doing their ebook publishing so much better than anyone else. And it really was because they were, they, they sat down and they said, we are going to do this like Amazon does it rather than like traditional publishing does it. Um, and that's, that's how they made themselves a success. I cannot remember how I got onto that story, but there is, <laughs> to get back to your original point, um, I would, I would call them <laughs> to borrow a phrase from Stephen Jay Gould, overlapping magisteria. They're at the sort of diagram between traditional publishing and self-publishing. And they, um, they do borrow from each other. There is of course also the sense that a lot of self-published authors would really genuinely like to be traditionally published, um, you know, to not just to have the, the joy of seeing their books in, in a, a Waterstones or a Barnes and Noble, but to have a team that's there working for you because being a self-published author means among other things, you are your own marketer and publicist. You are doing your own, yeah. <laughs> you can freelance out copy editing and proofreading. Um, but at the end of the day, you're the one designing your cover. You're the one putting the ads up on Facebook. You're the one responsible for every bit of that. And it can be exhausting. It is. A yeah, I think you need that. a certain personality type to be able to, well, to be driven to do that. Some people will be so geared towards the artistic side of the endeavor and the creative endeavor and there's all this industrial stuff that suddenly you're hit with if you decide to self-publish and people's you know a lot of artists in general they they're not industrious in that way or not orderly or organized so it's a tricky one to balance and i think having the traditional publishing model is is uh is helpful in that respect because you have the team of professionals behind you exactly i wanted to talk about the question of timing a sub a submission and uh, a quirkus you 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 accept submissions directly from authors as well as through agents don't you so you um hopefully you can answer this either with your agent hat on or a publisher's hat on a few episodes ago we had one of our good friends brian wigmore on as a guest and he wrote the uh or he's the author of the fire stealers series mm-hmm. which was published by snow books he's published the first two books and he's working on the third He's also working on, and I hope I'm not taking his name in vain here, And but he, he mentioned it on our episode, so I think it's okay. He's writing a young adult series, and it's got some quite uh, pertinent ecological themes without going into you know great detail. And he, we were chatting about whether you need to time a, subs- a submission so that it hits, let's call it, uh, the themes of the time or the zeitgeist, you know. So he's when he's wondering, should I wait to submit this this first the, the first novel in the trilogy, which is complete? I've read it, very good. It's pretty much ready to go, but he's sitting on it because he's, this question of timing is hanging over him. So, to, to, to what extent does that govern a publisher's or an agent's decision to take on and publish a piece of work because it has a particular resonance to the time? I would say no. Um, so speaking with my former agents hat on, the times not to submit um, are immediately after Christmas because <laughs> uh, everybody takes two weeks off, finish their book. Now like, oh, I'll send it out on January 2nd. Don't do that. Because um, everybody else will be sending it out on January 2nd. So I'd wait a little bit, <laughs> give it a couple weeks, <laughs> mid-January perhaps. Um, and then August is always a tough one. A lot of people... Um, in publishing and on the agenting side, take holidays in August for obvious reasons. And so August is always a difficult time. And it's very hard when you're an agent to come back and see that you've got an inbox that's full of submissions. Um, And so I would would say otherwise, however, there's no no right time or every time is right. Um, Just when the book is ready, when you think you've got the query letter nailed, uh, when you think you've got all the elements in place go out with it. And the thing is, and this is the hardest thing I think for, for everyone, uh, writer, agent, editor, publisher, whoever you are in 
in the process to accept is the fact that at the end of the day, it often just comes down to luck. Um, yeah. It, it just, it can be. <laughs> <laughs> you get a sign from above. <laughs> um, the, uh, you know, you, you might have a book, you might have a dream agent in mind as a writer. You might have what you think is the perfect book for them. You've actually read an interview with them where they're like, I absolutely desperately am looking for this thing. I have not had it. I really, really want it. And you might think to yourself, I've written that book. I'm getting it to that agent right now. And the thing is, they might have just signed someone a week ago who did just that. Um, or conversely, you might send a book out on submission and um, you get, you know, 50 turndowns. And then all of a sudden, someone that, you know, you sent it to on a whim, maybe because you saw them tweeting on on Twitter and you liked, you know, liked the cut of their jib. Um, they come back to you and you're like, they're like, you know, I just... I loved this. I, I thought this was great. I'd love to read the rest of it. Um, and then the same holds true throughout your publishing journey. Uh, just by, by sheer, sheer coincidence, for example, a couple of weeks ago, I got two books on submission from agents um, that were both based on the same piece of obscure folklore. Uh, two different agents, two different writers. Both writers had... I, I am sure absolutely independently um, come across this piece of folklore, written an entire book about it, and I managed to get them both within um, relatively just a few hours. And it really is just dumb luck that that happened. Um, and that's that's really the way it is all the way through the publishing process. We do everything that we can to make it, make it a numbers game, um, take the risk out of it. Uh, but at the end of the day, there's... And it's one of the reasons that publishing is exciting and aggravating and frustrating all at the same time is because there's so much luck involved. And I'm sure that that's going to be the most frustrating thing I could possibly say and that every one of your listeners is now shaking their fists at the sky. Um, but the the fact is that there's there's no good time, but there's no bad time, except for those two times that I mentioned, to put <laughs> your book out on submission. And, you know, whether or not you get... Uh, you know, an agent calling you in could have everything to do with the fact that their lunchtime meeting that day got canceled and they had a chance to sit down and read some submissions and they liked yours. Um, or a publisher may have gotten, you know, two submissions in short order set um, in the same, you know, sort of inspired by the same sort of uh, strange piece of folklore and they fell in love with one of them, but they lost it at auction and then they turned around and read the other one and they loved it too and they went for it. Um, it's just, <laughs> just, but I, I always say this as well. The other way that you can maybe open up or engineer an opportunity is by meeting people and talking yes. to people as well. So it's, it's not, you know, the slush pile isn't the only point of entry yes. into, into success, I guess, or getting a contract. So I, I, I probably, I'm not sure how much I should say, but I, I went to the London book fair and touch wood, I've managed to secure myself a publisher based on conversations that I had there. So you know you ha you have to leave the house sometimes mm -hmm. as well and go and go and see what's out there. I, I spoke to you know Ed Wilson when I was at the book fair and he was he was astonished to find that I'd come here voluntarily. He said, "You come here, <laughs> you choose to come here to this to this place." And it's a, it's a strange place, the London Book Fair as well, because it's um it's kind of old fashioned in that it's just a trade fair it's just business now i don't mind all that i go sort of fascinated by it but if you go to someone like the frank is it the frankfurt book fair which has the retail aspect as well so as well as having all of the agents and the publishers and the all the the, the various other businesses that are flouting their business like typesetters and printers and artists and everything else they have the retail side so they'll have uh, a book fair they'll have a book festival where the authors will go and do readings and interviews and signings so it's a bit of both uh, is, is that you know do you get the sense that london book fair is missing a trick with that <laughs> so i'll tell you the truth um back in back in 2000 the year 2000 i um as a complete punter managed to get into uh the american book expo when it was being held in chicago that year i lived in chicago at the time and just took a chance and applied and got a, got a pass for some reason. So I spent a good, say four hours wandering around and it was 
an extraordinary experience. And of course, this was this was the the heady years of the dot com boom um, when American publishing was just, I mean, making money hand over fist. And um, I walked out of that book fair with sacks of tote bags filled with free books. And many of them were signed, some by A-list authors. I remember particularly Sherman Alexie signed, it was at his publisher's table signing books. So I got him to sign an advanced copy of one of his books for me. And I mean, I, I will never forget the experience of just wandering up and having Sherman Alexie sign a book for me. And, um, and when I moved here and got involved in the publishing industry and started going to London Book Fair, I remember being very disappointed that it wasn't remotely like that. And of course that was, so I don't think I went to the book fair before the recession in 2008. Um, and, you know, there was, there was quite a lot of belt tightening post 2008. So what it was like before then, I can't speak to that, but um, I definitely started going in about 2009, 2010. And um, it was, it was nothing like that experience I had had, you know, a decade earlier in Chicago. There were no authors hanging around signing things. I was not loaded down with free books. <laughs> it was very disappointing. <laughs> and there's always been a part of me that has missed that. There's always been a part of me that's thought, as you say, are we missing a trick? Are we not yeah, it's 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 all business, isn't it? The London Book Fair. It's yeah. all business. There's there's not so much of the joy of, of yeah. discovery. Exactly. Um, hmm. But that's I did also one of the very first book fairs I ever went to. I got to listen to, um, and I just sat down and and listened to it without realizing what I was listening to. But it was Hilary Mantel and Kate Addy um, in conversation about the first Cromwell book. And it hadn't published yet. <laughs> and, oh, wow. and that was an extraordinary experience. And that's one that, again, I wish that, because I didn't work in publishing at the time. I was just there out of curiosity, really. And, um, and I wish that, I wish that there was more of that at the London Book Fair and that more mm-hmm. of it was, as you say, focused towards, towards readers and towards bringing joy to the idea of the industry and bringing more writers in. And I think part of it, of course, is that you have agents and editors who are worried that they're going to have unagented writers, um, you know, sort of knocking down their doors and saying, please, please read my manuscript. And they, they, they don't want that. They want to be there to have all of the conversations with editors and agents from other countries. But in a post-Zoom world um, where we can have those conversations all the time, whenever is most convenient for us, maybe it's time for us to reevaluate what London Book Fair is for. I agree, absolutely. And that's not to say that there aren't still opportunities for, for authors if they go there, but absolutely. blimey, you've got to work hard to find them. <laughs> <laughs> right, I think um, we've probably come to the end of the show. And it's, uh, Pete, have you got anything? Oh, you've been unusually quiet talking about all this industrial this, uh, stuff. I thought this would be right up your alley. The, the business side of things is a part of the industry where I'm currently just a sponge. I sit back and I listen and I take things in. Um, well, we've got the perfect guest for that. Exactly. We will ask you now, uh, Anne, uh, the last couple of questions before we come to the close. And the first one is, uh, what are you reading at the moment? Which is a very <laughs> easy one, which is, you know, the slush pie was not an acceptable answer, by the way. <laughs> and secondly, what book, apart from Uprooted, would you recommend for our listeners as a must read? Um, so I'm three quarters of the way through a romance novel that I've actually got right here called The Sweet Spot. Um, it's by Trish Dollar. And um, it's one that I picked up when I was in Los Angeles last. I went to a, a wonderful boutique uh, uh, bookshop in LA called The Ripped Bodice. Mm-hmm. Which I guess is um, romances. And I just um, <laughs> had an absolute field day in part because and this is actually speaking to our conversation a little earlier. Um, so the, the people who own the bookstore and the people who run the bookstore and everybody who works there, obviously big romance fans, extremely well read in the area. And what they do is they don't just take books that are traditionally published when they fall in love with a self-published book. Um, they will get, um, 
print-on-demand copies, and they will sell them. So um, I couldn't believe it as I was walking through this wonderful bookstore and seeing books from, you know, uh, St. Martin's Press and Simon & Schuster and HarperCollins and, um, and Grand Central next to self-published books and just, just shelved totally normally in a way that felt a bit like <laughs> a little bit like the uh, the dream of what you know <laughs> what democratic publishing should be yeah. um but it was absolutely a fabulous experience and so this was one this is not a self-published book this is a traditionally published one from saint martin's griffin in the u.s um but because the the u.s is in many terms way ahead of the uk in their romance publishing um I took the opportunity of being in that bookstore to go nuts and buy myself a lot of books. And um, so I've been working my way through the pile since being there. And so it's quite a sweet one, just a, a romance set in Ohio, which you know. It's, it's just actually tweaked. One more question. I know we said we're on the last question, but do you think, very quickly, that model of how, I know it said it was an independent bookstore, right? And they were, they probably had well, part of their business model. Okay, we'll look through some self published books. Do you think that's a. Uh, a uh, business model that the larger bookstores could possibly pick up in the future. They have a division or at least a person whose job is to scowl what's going on in self-publishing and what's great. That would, they, I think that would be fantastic. I think they should. Um, it's hard to imagine, for example, Waterstones doing that um, because Waterstones put such a, in a way, such a premium on their shelf space. Um, but specialist bookstores, I think, yeah. um, can and absolutely should in part because there is so much interesting stuff happening in the self-publishing world and because we're seeing authors come up in self-publishing and then move on into traditional publishing. I mean, certainly in the SFF world, Hugh Howie is a very, Hugh, uh, very Yeah, I, I actually want, when I started the podcast, I wanted to get Hugh Howie on. And then very quickly after that, it, it, his stuff went gangbusters. And <laughs> I thought, oh, well, I've blown that. I've lost my chance. <laughs> yeah, no, I do think, I think that um, independent bookstores should certainly consider it and certainly absolutely rather um, bookstores that specialize in romance bookstores that specialize in SFF. Um, I don't know as much about the self-publishing scene with crime, um, but I suspect that there is a, a fair amount of it and that a really knowledgeable um, reader slash book buyer could put some really interesting self-published crime on the shelves amongst the, the traditionally published stuff. Super. So tangent over. So recommended reading. Put you on the spot. Oh, What's your must I, read? Desert Island. God, book. you should have. I should have prepared something. I'm gonna have to look through my Kindle really fast <laughs> and see if I can think of anything. Um, okay. You know what? I'm gonna recommend a nonfiction book that I just read that I really, really enjoyed. I'm gonna Google it really fast while we're chatting. Um, the book is called The Dead Mountain, and it is about the Dyatlov Pass incident. If you are familiar with that one. No. So, well, I'm not Pete. I don't think so. <laughs> so it's a famous um, unsolved mystery slash true crime incident took place in, I believe, 1956, where a group of um, young Soviet students, I think they were 19, 20, 21, um, they were all very accomplished uh, cross-country skiers. They went on a long cross-country skiing trip in Siberia in the middle of winter, vanished, um, week, week and a half later, search parties are out looking for them. Um, they find their tent on the side of a mountain. It has been torn open from the inside. And then as they go searching, they find all of the bodies. And they're, for some reason, they're all nude. Um, and they're sort of scattered about the mountain. And no one is really sure what happened to these, these young people and why it is that they tore out of their tent in the nude, essentially sort of underdressed for the, you know, Siberian winter in the middle of the night um, and died of exposure on the mountain. And um, over the years, there have been a lot of, of conspiracy theories about UFOs, about um, government satellites, um, about avalanches, of course, yetis, that's always, always comes up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the author and his name is, all right, his name is Donnie Icar, E-I-C-H-A-R. Um, he he's a, a documentary filmmaker and he learned about the diet love pass incident while he was researching something else and started looking into it and um, wrote a book about his research. And he comes up with a very convincing, um, very interesting argument about what he thinks happened that night um, to those students and UFOs are not involved. That sounds really interesting. And it's nice to have a nonfiction recommendation. <laughs> Great. 
Well, it's absolutely riveting. And I have to admit, it's one of those sort of unsolved mysteries that has always sort of haunted me since I first learned about it. And It's um, got Netflix documentary written all over it. It really does. Well, he's a documentary filmmaker, so I hope he... Oh, there you go. So he knows who to pitch it to, doesn't he? Okay. Anne, that's been fantastic talking to you. Thanks for everything. Talking about Uprooted and the publishing industry. Uh, We've listened a lot. We've learned a lot. Pete, have we learned a lot? We've learned a lot. (laughs) We've learned a lot. There you go. And it's been wonderful to have you. Thanks ever so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for such a lovely conversation this evening. (laughs) Ah, you're very welcome. Well, it's it's the quality of the guests. (laughs) We'll see you soon. Have a good one, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. This episode of Cronscast was brought to you by Dan Jones and Pete Long and our guest Anne Perry. Additional content was provided by Brian Sexton and Jay Stylerpal. Special thanks to Brian Turner and the staff at Crons and thanks to you for listening. Join us next month when we'll be joined by one of the masters of modern horror, John Langan. We'll be talking all things horror ahead of the Halloween season and paying special attention to his masterpiece which gets its UK release in October. The Fisherman, 